Hello, I'm Alan Higgins, and you are listening to the Design Talk podcast. The following recording is a cross-pod release with The Blind Spot, a podcast created by Tina Lowe, Accessibility Officer at University College Dublin, Ireland. This episode was recorded on the 22nd of November 2021. Welcome to The Blind Spot. I'm your host, Tina Lowe. This podcast looks to show everyone about making Ireland accessible for all. Today we are joined by Jackie Hurley, RTE sports broadcaster, Patrick Flanagan, Paralympian swimmer, and Nicole Turner, Paralympian swimmer. Both Patrick and Nicole competed in the Tokyo Paralympics, and we are going to talk about access to sport. Good afternoon, everybody. Hi. Hello. Thanks Good for having afternoon. us. You're all very welcome. And also we are joined by um, Nicole's wonderful mother, Bernie, which I think is amazing as well. So good afternoon, Bernie. Hi, good afternoon. Lovely to talk to you. So what I'd like to do, first of all, is to ask you all to tell us a little bit about yourselves. So can we start with you, Patrick? Yeah, so um, my name is Patrick Flanagan. I'm 23. And like you said, I just came back from the Tokyo 2021 Paralympic Games. It was my first Games, but I've been swimming for a long time. I started swimming when I was about nine or ten with my just local swimming club in Longford. I was really lucky they had a really good setup there. There was someone with a disability already in the club, so there was a small bit of an avenue for me to join already. Um, and I joined in there, and I just kind of took the sport straight away, and I really loved, loved it. And I just started swimming every day, and I progressed naturally through the club. I got more serious around 15, 16, like most people do with their sport, and then... At the age of 18, I moved up to UCD for college and I joined the swim team here in UCD. And that's when I kind of took that gap to become a bit more elite and started my journey in international swimming. Uh, very good. And Jackie, good afternoon. Good afternoon, guys. Thanks a million for having me. Um, I suppose, look, like Patrick, I've been involved in sports my whole life, you know, in lots of different ways. I obviously played a lot of it, um, you know, played very competitive basketball for Ireland, played camogie for Cork, and but really kind of broadcasting was always my real passion, just kind of always felt like getting involved and getting that close to the action was a career that I really, really wanted from a very young age. So been very lucky that I was in Tokyo as well, like... Uh, the two here and uh, had a great summer watching sport and being involved in it so um, very very lucky to to do what I do. And you also uh, have written a series of books Jackie? Yeah uh, the Girls Play 2 series is like god it's amazing like genuinely it was something I wanted to do for a long time but actually it was just trying to decide what the right book was and for me I've always been really passionate about getting girls in particular involved in sport and keeping them in sport and a lot of it is around role modelling like Nicole is in the second series of the book and like I'm sure she'd tell you herself like just the power of being able to speak to kids and telling them you know just how you know that, that old saying you can't see it you can't be it but it's amazing that when you can see it just what it can do for kids so for me it was about kind of finding the right book and thankfully Girls Play 2 has, has really inspired a lot of kids to continue with sport and I, I just I love even having a small part in all of that. Yeah it's fantastic it's, it is it's brilliant sport is so amazing for so many different reasons so welcome Nicole and Bernie how are you both? Thank you I'm good thank you. Yeah we're good thanks. So tell us a bit about yourselves. Uh, so I'm Nicole I'm 19 uh, Tokyo was actually my second Paralympic Games, so I went to Rio when I was 14. Uh, in Rio, I swam five events. I made five finals. 
and then went on to Tokyo to swim three events, made three finals and won a Paralympic silver medal. Amazing. <laughs> and Bernie, can you, uh, I, I actually had the, the privilege of talking to you today earlier, Bernie, and I didn't realise it, but Patrick and Nicole are great friends, which is great because we can all chat away. And Bernie, can you tell us about your, I'd say you were, to, you know, pardon the pun, but the driving force, I would imagine, behind Nicole's, <laughs> I can hear Nicole laughing, so... <laughs> Driving force behind Nicole's, I'd say, success. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm Bernie, I'm Nicole's mum. Yeah, Nicole got into sport when she was five years of age. Her brother swam, so we decided that Nicole had swim too. We didn't know initially that Nicole had dwarfism at that stage, so she was just swimming just to learn to swim. Um, When she was five and a half, we found out that she had had chondroplasia. And when she was seven, um, the World Dwarf Games came to Belfast and Eugene McVeigh, who's um, a disability coach for badminton up in Northern Ireland, was able to get Nicole to compete at the World Dwarf Games. So we did it initially because we wanted Nicole to meet other people that were her size. We'd, We'd met the Buck family from Little People of Ireland, but we wanted her to meet people are on edge so that's why we did it we didn't do it with the cause that she was going to go and compete and win I think she won five gold a silver oh yeah five gold two silver and a bronze at them games and she did um swimming athletics and she did team sports and um they just it just from there it stemmed there was a coach from one of the other countries that just tapped me on my shoulder and said, your daughter's going to be phenomenal at swimming. And I said, really? And she said, yeah. She goes, you should nurture that and um, and I wish you all the success. And that's what happened. We just, she continued in the club and then it just went from there. Very good. And I'm going to just ask a general question because I, I, I would like, uh, when the Tokyo Paralympics were on, I watched it nearly every day because the coverage on RTE was particularly good. They had a panel discussion every evening and they talked about how good sport is for people with disabilities, how much more accessible it is, and that it is a distinct sport from the the, the actual Olympics. So, um, Nicole, can you talk to us about that? Because I know I was listening to your one of your podcasts and you, you spoke about that quite in detail, about the fact that the Paralympics is a distinct sport. I think the Paralympics, it shows what people with disabilities, what they can do rather than what they can't. Uh, like even going back to how my mom said I got involved in sport at a very young age. Um, when I was watching the Paralympics in Beijing in 2008, there was a swimmer on the telly who was small, just like me, uh, called Ellie Simmons. And uh, I was mesmerized that there was a small swimmer like me, but she was going on to swim at Paralympic Games and win a gold medal. Um, and like that, that was where I saw that I wanted to go to a Paralympics and win medals. Um, so I think, yeah, I think the power of the TV, like, and fair play to RTE, the amount of coverage they showed and just the amount of kids that'll be out there with disabilities and wanted to get into sport, they'll see everyone on the telly with disabilities, but yeah, going on to win Paralympic medals. And Nicole, who are your role models? 
in any walk of life. <laughs> I'm gonna have to say Ellie Simmons. Um, Ellie smiled just like me, as I said a minute ago. Um, and I watched her. I started. I watched her in Beijing, in London, and then in Rio, I started competing against her beside a block. So I think. Wow. Like that was kind of yeah, it was kind of like a oh wow moment. I've looked up to her for so many years, and uh, now I, I was competing against her. So did did you beat her in that race? No, I didn't. No, God no. <laughs> <laughs> you were close, though, Nicole. You were close. Yeah, 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 very good. That must have been amazing, actually. That'd be like me. I used to play tennis years ago, and I actually took up blind tennis, which is incredible. But uh, now I was going to say that'd be like me playing against Martina Navratilova. I'm only joking. It's because my name is Martina. So, Patrick, can I ask you the same question? Your thoughts on competing in the Paralympics? Yeah. Um, so, for me, my whole goal of my swimming career was to get to get to a Games. I I wasn't that close to Rio. Um, so, Tokyo just kind of came to me. It seemed like the be-all and end-all. And then, obviously, getting postponed and stuff, I wasn't sure if it was even going to happen. So, that moment of getting to be there and getting to compete was completely surreal I was wasn't on to like the 10th day of the competition or something like that so I had watched Ellen win her medal I'd watched Nicole win her medal I'd watched so many fantastic performances and then I got to have my turn and that was that was phenomenal and I think when you go to a games it just gives you so much pride in having a disability and being a Paralympian and seeing the the Paralympic symbol the Agitos um which is like the three dash thing is it takes so much pride in that symbol now, and that's not something I really would have had as much before the games. And it makes you just realize how powerful the movement is, and the opportunities it can give someone with a disability to to achieve such fantastic things. Very good. And Jackie, can I talk to you about? Um, I was reading a lot about uh, your thoughts on say the why sport is so important to people, and especially in we'll say in the past almost two years now that you were talking a lot about um, how say. It's gear, it's buoyed us up and helped us to kind of get through some difficult times in this pandemic. So can you talk to me about that? Because I know you've done a huge amount of coverage this year and different uh, international events. So, Yeah, like to be honest, I think one sport disappeared from our lives there for a while. We suddenly realised how important it was because the moment it came back, it was something that gave people joy. And, you know, I think sometimes we're afraid about saying, oh, this is great. You know, like we were nearly in the sports world kind of half afraid to say to people, you know, it's a really good thing to be going back because I think with COVID and everything, everyone was really worried about being back outside among crowds and all that. But I think once you saw that, look, it's safe to do this, I think everybody just wanted it to be back. Like, and as Patrick said there, the uncertainty of not having something, I just thought it was really difficult for athletes, you know, in particular who, you know, when your your whole identity is wrapped up in doing this thing and then suddenly when you can't do it it makes you kind of reassess your life and like on a different scale obviously we were doing that as our job where we were kind of stuck indoors and not able to do it but I had a huge amount of sympathy for the athletes because I genuinely thought like you know how do you readapt your whole schedule which was really difficult I think the one thing that we saw this year in particular with the Olympics the Paralympics the Euros you know when major events came around the whole Irish public got behind it like the coverage on the Paralympics was amazing I mean the amount of numbers yeah like the numbers that tuned in to watch the Paralympics the numbers that tuned in to watch the Olympics and the Euros and all that will tell you how important sport is to people exactly and I think what 
what really struck me because I hadn't watched it that much. Like I've, as I say, I have tried blind tennis. I'm not pretending I'm a champion, <laughs> but it's good, right? But I watched the Paralympics this year, especially because the coverage was so good. And there was a panel discussion every evening with loads of um, athletes and just amazing discussions about everything to do with it. And also what was good about it was they described how it works, all the different classifications, how you get somebody who's blind to run. There was I watched one, it was a, a long jump, <laughs> a blind man jumping a long jump. And I was like, oh my God, that is just amazing. So it, it is, it's a, sport has a, such an ability to improve people's lives. And this podcast is all about trying to show people that accessibility to sport or to everything else really makes a difference to people. And that's why, you know, we're, we're talking about it today. So, Patrick, can I ask you, who are your people who you admire most in, in life, sport as well? Yeah, from a sporting perspective, it would, one of my main, like, idols would definitely have to be my Nicole's coach, Dave. Um, he was a medalist from both Sydney and Athens um, in the 100 metre back crawl. And I swam in a couple of different teams throughout my swimming career. But when I went and swam under Dave, that was the first time I'd been coached by a Paralympian. And it was the first time I'd swam in a para swimming team. So that was something that was quite important to me because it's, you know, it's such a big part of your identity and realizing, you know, it's a para swimming is slightly separate from, you know, everybody swimming. So seeing him kind of blaze that trail and, you know, achieve such great things at the games and go on to be a coach and set up a great network for para swimming within Ireland. Yeah. He's definitely someone I'd look up to. I suppose then, more from outside of sport, uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's hard to know. Maybe someone like I think I'm always I, I admire people like Elon Musk. Not necessarily because of the money, but like people that come up with their Tra- own Tra- avenues. Tra- yeah, make companies yeah. that kind of stuff. I studied finance in college, so that kind of stuff definitely, um, yeah, ent- entertains me. And Jackie, who are your role models? From a sporting point of view, Sonia O'Sullivan was the first hero I ever had. Um, I guess she was a girl from Cork and she was the first person that made any of us dream that we could do that. Um, I, I think now long distance athletics was never going to be my thing. I'm not built like that. So it just wasn't uh, it wasn't for me. But what she did do was inspire us in sport. And I, I've always loved Sonia O'Sullivan for that. Outside of sport, I think like those f- strong female role models that, you know, teach you the, about there's big things that you can aim for. Mary Robinson was the one when we were children of the 90s to see a female president of this country just never thought we would have that and then suddenly you get an amazing role model like that and you hear her speaking to the world and you realize wow like that that's amazing so Mary Robinson for me was was definitely the one that that made us kind of think bigger picture very true she started it and she's still doing it and also it's funny when you talk when you talk about Sonia O'Sullivan um I have uh, guide dogs I've I've I'm on my third dog now, but when I went down the first time to Cork, one of the days we were out doing our guide dog training and somebody, one of the trainers said, oh my God, there's Sonia O'Sullivan. She runs, she just runs like a gazelle. She was just running, training <laughs> in Cork, just jogging away. No problem. Nobody's stopping her. You know, it was amazing. And they're like, wow. And it's true, actually, I, I, the guide dogs in Cork, I love Cork, but the guide dogs have, um, the person who's their biggest role model is Roy Keane. <laughs> Roy, man, Roy, yeah. Roy, he's done amazing stuff for for uh, the guide dogs. He has. I, I, I do. I have to say, I love Roy Keane, even though he's a bit controversial, because he's he's a man. He sticks to his guns. So I'm just going to ask you, Nicole, how I just for the listeners' point of view, 
to describe to us what your what how you've what your training involves and how much work and time and what commitment you have to put into your routine to become an athlete to become a champion um so in 2017 so i live in port harrington uh, in county leash and i train up in blanchardstown in the nac so in that's in 2017 that's when i decided to move to the nac as patrick said to be coached by dave um and then for me to do that my normal school day back then was nine to four but I needed to be in the NAC for five o'clock. So back then my school agreed for me to finish school 40 minutes early every day to get up to the NAC for five o'clock. So I did that from second year, third year and through transition year. But then going into fifth year, they just said it wasn't possible anymore just because you'd have your seven core subjects and missing a class a day, you would be missing out on a lot. So that's when I decided to take a year out of swimming, a year out of school, should I say, and become a full-time swimmer but then when the games got postponed that year turned into two years so I think it is like it does take a lot of like as my mom gave my mom doesn't work because she drives me to and swap to and from swimming every day um and just the rest and recovery as well like me doing homework until 11 o'clock at night I didn't think that'd be feasible either so I took for the two years before the games I was a full-time athlete and now I've gone back to do a PLC in sport and leisure management in Portlaoise Institute. So it's about 15 minutes away from my house. And are you enjoying that? Absolutely. Yeah. Like I think like going back to school, it was a no go. Um, But I think it is nice now that I do have a balance of sport and education rather than my life just isn't sport anymore. Uh, And it's nice. Very good. And your mother's pivotal role in all this driving. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. She is, yeah, yeah. Every day. Huge, huge <laughs> assistance. And I'm sure your family are very proud of you. Oh, they are. And they're very understanding. Like my, my dad has a full time job, so he brings all the income into the house. And then my two old, I have two older brothers at home. Kieran's 21 and Daniel's 26. Um, and even from a very young age, like there would be times that my parents would prioritize taking me somewhere to taking them out with their friends or taking them to a football match. So they've always been very understanding of what That's very good. So so no no family rows. All all no, good. Fa- yeah. No family rows, no. <laughs> very good. And Patrick, what about yourself? What what are your plans now? I believe you graduated. Yeah, so kind of not too dissimilar to Nicole. I had uh I was in university um around the time of the games and I postponed my final year for the sake of them when they're meant to be on in twenty twenty and then it got postponed. So I kinda came back to finish it off. And get it done before the games in 21 but I have graduated now I finished here in UCD there last May and at the moment I'm just kind of taking some time to relax it's been you know five years of balancing college and swimming and a lot a lot of driving so I'm enjoying just taking some time to relax I'm going to start looking for work and then decide on my next steps then. And can I ask you both are you thinking about Paris? Um, I'm, I'm not too yeah. sure yet <laughs> <laughs> I'm like I said I'm going to just because I've because I've just finished college as well, it feels like I'm naturally going on to the next stage of my life. Um, so I'm just going to weigh up my options and see how it works out around if I get a job and how swimming and stuff works out. But I would not let Nicole do that. I'd be forcing her to go to Paris. <laughs> when did you find out that the Tokyo Paralympics? It was March in 2020 when they actually got postponed. And I just I remember like that last couple of days, we were coming to the pool like, 
I remember bringing like my suitcase to the pool because I didn't know if I was going to be going back to college that day or be going home. You know, we, it was just such ambiguity around the space. And then we just, we went home and it was about 10 weeks out of the water. We came back around June that year. And I don't know when we actually got told they'd be going on a year later, but we were nervous the whole time up until we pretty much left. And especially because the Olympics were on the month before the Paralympics, there was just a really small fear amongst the para-athletes that something would happen at the Olympics. There'd be a massive outbreak or something like that, and that might affect the Paralympics. But thank God that was maybe just slightly irrational on our behalf, and it never happened. But yeah, it was it was nervy really up until we got on the plane. And even then it was nervy because you didn't know if you were going to test positive when you got there. You just had to be as careful as you could possibly could be. And can Nicole, can you describe the what the training camp was like when you got to Japan? Um, so we actually... We did it. So we were away from home for about five and a half weeks. Uh, we all left home on the 1st of August and we went to Fritz Ventura for two and a half weeks. Um, And even so it didn't go to plan. So like if Tokyo would have happened in 2020, we were meant to be in Tokyo for two weeks before the games actually started. But due to COVID, that had to be cut and we were there for about just over a week, I think. Um, so when we were in Fritz Ventura, we had to adapt to Tokyo time in Fritz Ventura. So like we were all laughing, like we were swimming at like four or five o'clock in the morning and then going to bed at like six, seven o'clock in the evening. So it did take up a lot, a lot of adapting and like the training, training always gets so like training before a bit major event, it does get shorter, but it gets a lot like you do a lot more fast. Well, Patrick's not so much a sprinter, so Patrick wasn't <laughs> doing the short, fast work. But you do it. It the the work does get shorter, but it is faster and harder. And then when you when you get to the actual camp, like what's the feeling like? Describe to me what it's like when you have to go out, say, for your first race. Well, for me, my first race wasn't my most important race. So to be honest, I had two really enjoyable races until my 50 fly and that was when the real kind of butterfly nerves do kick in but I think you just have to tell yourself like the amount of times myself and Patrick have done them races over and over again um and the amount of training that's gone in to get there so you just have to kind of tell yourself and believe in yourself that you've done it so many times it's all gonna go to plan hopefully so you don't feel any nerves you do <laughs> even though you tell yourself you you do you, you, you'd have yeah you'd have butterflies in your stomach and you do feel I wouldn't say pressure but you do you don't want to disappoint yourself and you also don't want to disappoint like our coach Dave the amount of time the amount of time and effort he put into it and our friends and family like you don't want to disappoint other people that are so invested in what you do um, so it does a lot of nerves and pressure because it can come with it sometimes. Can you talk to talk us through what it was like the day that you won the silver medal and tell us what it was like standing on the podium when we were all crying <laughs> in Ireland. <laughs> with sheer Not pride. just in Ireland, in the stadium. Ireland, I was, everywhere, yeah. everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest, it's a bit of it was a bit of a blur. Like you don't really. I think you're in such a like I was in such a bubble of what happened like you don't really think about it and even now it seems a blur like it's all about the process to be honest like even that morning so like the way we'd have a heat in the final that morning I'd just get up and I'd, I knew I'd be quite comfortable going into the heat to get into the final so the morning really didn't bother me but then it was kind of like once I'd swam the heat and I think qualifying second rather than third that was kind of another wild moment that I was it, it, it kind of was like the dreams coming more and more alive um 
but then before the race I it, it was honestly the it's the most nervous I've been ever before a race and thankfully sometimes nerves can't go in your can get in the way and not go to your favor but thankfully the nerves did work well with me um and I did obviously win the silver medal but yeah no it's just it's huge pride and I think like it was nice to well I suppose RTE covered at home and everyone got to celebrate at home and it was nice to see what impact it had on other people's lives as well as mine um and it was just it was pure relief I'd say as well because like all of the uncertainty of COVID um the amount of time we had out of the water and then obviously not being in school for two two years like a lot of sacrifices and there was a few bumps in the way so to even get to the games was a plus for us but then and and then how about how about your family at home did you phone them or how did that (laughs) I would you believe I actually got in trouble for not talking to my mom the week I was swimming Um, but my mom's a very nervous person so I think we're our own worst enemies when we're together and we're both nervous so I kind of just let her I left her alone and she left me alone um but no it was nice it was nice that Richie got to capture their reaction and like even it was nice in a way I know they didn't get to come poolside but then they got to celebrate it like some of my mom's family came over the neighbors came over and like some of my like fellow swimming mates who we'd swim in the club they all came down to watch it so it was nice that people did get together and made the extra effort because they knew they couldn't be there on poolside with us very good and Patrick what about yourself what was it like you're in preparing yourself on the day of your race and how did you feel well, actually, sorry, just one thing, going back to what Nicole was saying there about her being on the podium. That was the one thing I really felt about, obviously it was my first game, so I've never experienced a game with people in the stands. But because there was no one in the stands, it felt, when Nicole was on the podium, it felt so like intimate almost that there was maybe the 10, 15 Irish swimmers and support staff, and then there was Nicole on the podium, and she could really hear us. You know, So we had that, that was such a lovely moment and a connection. And I remember Nicole and I taking the bus home that evening, and it, would, it worked out, we were the only two Irish people on the bus, and calling one of her like one of our good friends and that was it was such a pride even though like Nicole won the medal but it was such a pride moment for like the swim team and stuff you know so when you, it you, comes off you could hear the the you could hear it sounded it actually from home it sounded like there was thousands of people yeah but that was 15 of us <laughs> roaring our heads off <laughs> yeah, yeah. but uh so my race then was a couple of days afterwards it was it just it worked out I raced two events and they were on the last two days of the swimming competition so the whole time I was coming down watching the guys doing my own training, trying to stay in the zone, trying to not get caught up in too much of it. But uh, it was tough because it, it made myself more nervous. The longer you wait, you kind of build it up in your head. And I could definitely be susceptible to overthinking things at times. So I was trying not to do that and just trying to stay relaxed. And uh, I feel like I did that pretty well. And it, for me, I, a lot of people, you know, Nicole was, she wanted to get her medal. But for me, I knew realistically, I was just going there to try and swim my lifetime best. And my big goal in my career was to get to a games. And I'd done that. So it was about taking it all in. The The feeling of going out behind the block, looking at this fantastic facility and, you know, knowing I was about to race against the best in the world. It was just about enjoying that. And yeah, it was, it was just such a proud moment. Like in the interview afterwards, I was tearing up because I just, I'd done it. And that was, yeah, I was just so happy. And it was uh, probably a relief as well, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, the, definitely, definitely a bit of relief that it, it had finally happened. And Jackie, can I ask you, like from the sports presenting part, like, we were all watching it at home and it was an amazing coverage and like what was it like to be actually in the sports news desk and 
Yeah, it was kind of, it was weird when we were in Tokyo because it's kind of like what the guys are saying there. You know, getting there was the hard part. We were so worried about would it happen, would it not happen? And then you get there and you realise that's only kind of half of it. You know, you're getting daily tested. You're trying to be really careful because I think everybody was just so hyper aware of protecting the games and the integrity of the summer and just making it happen was the big thing. Like, so there was that. The other thing, the intimacy that Patrick talks about there and like even Nicole described in the moment of being on the podium it's funny how you all remember the other side of it like I remember watching Nicole on the podium and crying here like I was back at home I'd obviously been in Tokyo for the Olympics but was back here for the Paralympics and like just being really emotional like watching her and same with Ellen you know I think maybe it was because when we got to see you know Bernie and Nicole's family and just what it meant to them back home because of those moments like what Patrick is talking about where there's there's nobody in the stadium there's really just the Irish team and the support staff and a couple of volunteers and we had that when we were in at the Olympics as well where like you know when Kelly Harrington won her medal I was one of only maybe 50 people in the whole arena and it makes it so much more intimate that like those moments that you get to spend with people afterwards like you, you can't even describe it like I was there when Katie Taylor won her Olympic gold medal in 2012 and there was 9,000 people in that XL arena that day and it was one of the loudest atmospheres in my life well Kelly's was complete opposite because it was so quiet but it was even more emotional, if that makes sense, because it's just like capturing the moment in the year that we've had and just how much it meant to people was really, really special. And I think for the Olympics and Paralympics, those memories and those moments for all of us uh, will stay with us for a very long time. Like in my 15 years of, of doing this job, I can't remember a more emotional summer. And I think that's down to the people who were involved, but, you know, the events as well. Yeah. It's very true, and it is true to say when when we were watching it on or telly, like it really did sound like there was so many more people in that um, swimming arena. <laughs> it's amazing, actually. And then when in Ireland back home, then the celebrations were like you lifted the nation. That's the truth, you know. People were happy for the whole summer. I think any sport event lifts people's spirits, as well as making it possible for people to compete with all different say, backgrounds and with people with disabilities. So, Patrick, I just want to come back to one thing just to mention, and it's not a negative thing. It's really, it highlights what this podcast is about, which is accessibility. Can you talk to us just briefly about your, I know I remember in the news when you were on your travels. Yeah, so like Nicole said earlier on, we did our training camp in Fort Ventura, um, which before the game, so it was a part of our preparations. And, our flight path from there to Tokyo was via London and we had an overnight stay there and when we landed in London my chair wasn't working um, so normally when I get off the plane everyone gets off the plane first and I'm waiting at the end for them to drink up my chair which is you know perfectly fine it's how it works and the captain of the plane actually came down to me and said sorry Patrick your chair is it's broken and I was like haha good one you know, I thought he was he was joking with me and then he said it again I was like please I have to I have to go to Tokyo in the morning I, I hope you're messing he's like no sorry I'm not and they put me in the aisle chair and they brought me out and I saw my chair and the frame was damaged, the wheels were bent out of shape, um, just it just wasn't working, simple as. Uh, so, like, I was distraught. I was trying to keep it together, you know, I was trying to keep a level head and it's stuff like this, it's quite tough because you want to take it out on the person that's giving me their chair and it's, it's not their fault, you know, but they're the person I'm seeing. So it's frustrating and I was just trying to be aware of that. And they put me in this airport chair, which was, you know, way too big for me and... I was struggling to push myself and obviously like 
we were in the build up to a racing. So I was trying to really protect my body and I wasn't trying to do anything new, you know, keep using the same muscle groups and stuff like that. So being in a chair like this just was all over the place. Um, but yeah, they basically just told me, okay, file a, file a claim and we'll see you in a bit. So I didn't know what I was going to do. I was really fortunate that it happened in London because some other athletes were flying out the following morning. And my my dad, we I live in Sligo. My dad was able to drive from Sligo up to Dublin in the middle of the night with an old spare wheelchair I had, get it onto the plane with some other athletes and bring it over to London. And I was so many things just were so lucky for me that I had a spare wheelchair that happened in London and that I was going to a games with people who were able to support me and able to get me through the 20, the 12 hours when I was stuck in an over, oversized chair, barely able to get around a hotel room. But the reason I would like, I put out on social media, I tried to like think about what I was putting out, but I just really wanted to get it across that it happened to me. And that tweet went quite viral because I was going to a games and because you could use the buzzwords like Paralympian and Paralympics. But I was really fortunate where that happened and when that happened. If that happened to me when I was going on holidays with my friends, I would have had to turn around. And also, I'm a relatively independent wheelchair user. I'm, it's a manual wheelchair. I can transfer quite well. If that happened to someone who had a, a lot more higher, higher end needs than me, they would be, you know, that, that's really damaging to their whole lifestyle. So it's really something that should never happen. And it's something that airlines and airports really need to put more, more work into because you shouldn't be scared to go traveling. So how would you say, how would you envisage or how would you promote accessibility you know how do you get people that that idea across to people that it's so important not to you know damage wheelchairs or yeah well first of all i would urge people with wheelchairs that something like that does happen to is that you have to just you have to speak up and let your voice be heard and make it clear that you're not happy and this can't be happening but airlines need to understand that our wheelchairs it's not just it's not luggage it's it's not something we're just bringing along it's it's part of me it's part of who i am it's everything to me and they need to they need to find avenues to ensure that stuff like that cannot happen so whether it's maybe you store them on board instead of putting them in the hold maybe you have a separate cabin a separate cabin sorry that's extra protection or something like that but it just they need to find an avenue that people with disabilities aren't scared to go traveling yeah and luckily it turned out well yeah well but just it was a, it really was a lucky. slight battle but maybe yeah. maybe it buoyed you up even more yeah yeah a bit extra motivation yeah it was just lucky i got i got my yeah. spare chair and Look, I put it behind me and I didn't worry about it for the couple of weeks we were out in Tokyo. I wasn't going to let it affect my Paralympic Games experience. But yeah, it's it, it's something that it gave an extra bit of attention to the Games. And sorry, the, the Games gave an extra attention to it. And I'm glad it did that because I'm hoping even if one or two airlines saw that tweet and maybe made some change in the back of it, then, then good came helps. of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, Nicole, uh, can you talk to us about um, your, you do, I know you're involved in you going to talk, give talks to uh, school children. It's the Dare to Be, is that right? The Dare to Be program. The Dare to Believe program, yeah. To Believe, um, sorry. I was thinking Dare to Be, which I thought was <laughs> a great name. Sorry, Dare to Believe, yeah. It is. Um, so it was organised in 2019. And basically for, it doesn't even have to be Olympians and Paralympians, but just athletes around Ireland who've competed at a high level, um, they can still be competing or they can still be competing or they can be retired athletes as well. Um, and it's just for them to go around to schools across the country. Uh, with COVID, it turned virtual for nearly the past two years. Um, but it's just to share, like, share your story of how you got into sport, your sporting achievements, what made you get into, like, and I think it's just to for you to have an impact. Maybe even if it's one 
one child in a 30 children class um just to have an impact on someone else's life and drive them to success or to what they want to do um with their lives like maybe with maybe if it be go to olympics or paralympics or win a county championships but it just for it to open doors for everyone else to see that like as jackie see to see what they think they can see but to for them to see it um so i think yeah it's just it's there to believe it's highlighting that for them to dare to believe what they what they want to do um and it's a really good program like Kelly Harrington's another one that's part of it. Like there's just there's so many and so many athletes have so many great stories to share with them. So I think it's just it's just it's trying to share your story and then trying to encourage kids or young adults to get involved into sport as well. Um your mother told me a lovely story today about that the when and when you you met some of the when you came back to show your medal and do the, you know, meet with people, I think. Um, can you tell us that story about the, the little boy in the wheelchair? <laughs> um, yeah, so when I came back from Tokyo, the, the actually, we flew home from Tokyo. It was a very late Tuesday night. Um, but on the Wednesday, all my local community, they just, they arranged a big, massive parade through the town through, uh, all the way home. But just before the parade, everyone was gathered in the local rugby club and um, there was a little boy called Eddie. He was about seven or eight, and he was in a he was in a wheelchair full time. He could he didn't have any use of his legs. And um, my mom and dad just said like everyone was around me wanted to see my medal, but my mom and dad just pulled me aside for a second and they were like, "Here, there's a young boy over here. Will you come and say hello to him?" And um, and I went over to Eddie. He was such a lovely little lad. I showed him my medal, and he was just mesmerized by it. And then even when I was leaving, like. He turned to his mom and he was like, God, mom, I want to be like Nicole one day. I want to go to the Paralympics. So as I said earlier, I think that's just the power of the Paralympics. It's show, showing people what you can can do rather than what you can't and then trying to, to inspire the next generation. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a very positive message. And Jackie, can you talk on that point about, say, how much, how kind of important and happy it makes us when we play sport? Oh, like, look, to me, it's it's the one thing that gives people more joy than anything else. But, I mean, maybe we're all biased in the room because that's who we are. But I just, like, I honestly think when you hear stories like what Nicole is talking about there with kids being inspired to play sports by seeing people who are like them or people who inspire them, that's what it's all about. You know, like, when I was a young girl, all I wanted to do was play sports and all I wanted to do was look around. And, like, I have an older sister who... Thankfully, when I was younger, was a really good role model for me because she was good at sports and she sort of gave me a little pathway to follow. Where you know she was playing basketball with the Irish team, then I wanted to play basketball with the Irish team, and it's just you know it's very simple to follow that path. But like what I would say is, I even see I have two children myself. I have a seven-year-old boy and a four-year-old girl, and there's nothing better for them than being out in the open and playing sports. You know, so whether that's running around on the green or whether that ends up being competitive sports for them, I don't really care what I do care about is that they get enjoyment from something and that it's accessible to them that you know based on what we were kind of talking about earlier about making it accessible for all that there's a level that they can play at whether that's internationally or whether that's locally or whether that is just kicking around that there's a level that they can go out and enjoy it and do it for the rest of their lives because look I'm very lucky to be still at a stage in my life where I'm 
37 and I still get to play competitive basketball I'll play it for literally as long as my body allows me to play um, because it's it's good for me you know and I enjoy it and I'd like to to encourage people to do that because I think whatever level it is if you can find something where you can get a ball or you can go for a swim or you can go for a run and have a laugh with your mates and get something out of that and whatever that is for you that's a really really positive thing so, yeah absolutely it's, it's a, that's fantastic and um can I say to you all that it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I was really excited about this because I'm I get very I'm very childlike. I get very excited meeting people and I, I watched <laughs> it for so long. It was just I got such pleasure this summer because as I say, I used to play tennis many years ago. I did try blind tennis and it's brilliant. I played in the world blind tennis. I didn't win, but I loved it. It was amazing actually. It's really amazing. difficult but unbelievable sport. But um so it's been a, a an absolute privilege to talk to you all. And can I end today by asking you one question each? And it's to tell us, what is your blind spot? And I'm going to start with Jackie. Okay. Um, God, my blind spot is, is, I think in a way, it's actually kind of just the biases that you want to check yourself on. You know, like sometimes I think in, in the world, sometimes we're very quick to to talk to call other people out when they do things but it's actually being aware of the things that you do yourself so whether that's like I think on our sports desk as well it's very funny because we'd often get emails from people being like why didn't you cover this or why didn't you cover that and you're saying god we're really trying and you're really trying to scrambling you only get four minutes a day and you're sort of getting news editors saying we want to do this and we want to do that and so for me my blind spot is just constantly reminding myself that you cannot be perfect at this job and the minute you are somebody will tell you that you are not you know so uh, I think it's always kind of checking checking your biases very good okay Patrick um oh like so just something that I'm kind of guilty of doing my one that my brothers always give out to me for is getting them to do something that I am perfectly capable of doing myself I'll be lying on the couch I'm like oh will you make me a cup of tea and they're like you're in a wheelchair you can make yourself a cup of tea but I'll just always ask someone to do it just a bit of laziness I suppose (laughs) that's honest (laughs) honest and Nicole um <laughs> yeah I'd be like Patrick as well I'd, I like we'd call it play the disabled card sometimes yeah you have show. to do it sometimes you know <laughs> <laughs> um, you'd make people feel guilty yeah. for you but you're Just well harmless, able harmless ways you're sometimes. well able to yeah. do it yourself <laughs> uh, yeah that'd be I'm guilty of that too uh, making others and, do something even though I oh, kind of yeah. and, and what about you Barney Oh, Bernie's gone. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, <sure. laughs> That's her blind spot. Oh, well. Okay. So, look, it's been fantastic talking to you today, and I just want to say thanks a million. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to The Blind Spot. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe. Until next time on The Blind Spot. The Blind Spot podcast was funded under the University for All Faculty Partner Programme and developed with the support of the UCD College of Business and UCD Access and Lifelong Learning.